Oh, thanks. So, what'd you think? Of the movie? Oh, yeah. Wasn't Pandora cool? I mean, the place was like a club med for space aliens. <laughs> I don't know. The aliens were kind of weird. Their big eyes were kind of freaky, but why were they blue? Well, the blue lady was hot. Right. <laughs> of course you'd say that. What? Just saying. Hey, Max. Hey, Tom. What are you doing here? Oh, I'm just getting some coffee. I'm going to take the kids out to see Avatar. Oh, yeah. We just saw that. It's amazing. Wait a minute. I thought you just said you didn't like it. I didn't say I didn't like it. The aliens were kind of creepy, but I liked it. Sorry, this is Tom. He's the pastor at my church. Nice to meet you, Father. Uh, just Tom is fine. Oh, forgive me. Father Tom. Right. Hey, listen, it looks like you guys are busy, and I'm kind of running late, so I'll see you at church on Sunday. All right, Tom. Have fun. Wow, a, uh, a priest in khakis. <laughs> and uh, where's his collar? And what's with the big hair? He's not a priest. He's a pastor. <laughs> what's the difference? Well, he's married, for one. What else? Um, I don't know, actually. Wait a minute. I thought priests were single. He's not a priest. He's a pastor. And I thought you were Catholic. I am. Well, I was Catholic. I mean, I grew up in Catholic church, and I stopped going to Mass probably, you know, when I was in college. Naughty girl. Okay, whatever. <laughs> but anyway, I went back to church a couple months ago. I've been going to Tom's church, and it is not Catholic. It's just different. Maggie Peterson, did you join a cult? What? No, it's not like that. Are you going to start shaving your head, giving flowers out at airports or <laughs> something? No, it's Christian. It's totally fine. It's just a little different. Mm, how's that, Sister Mary Margaret? Well, it's Protestant. It's not Catholic. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a minute. You serious? You changing sides? What? Changing sides? No. They're both Christian. They do a lot of the same things. Like, they both read from the Bible. There's communion. Hmm, um, what's communion? You know, like the Eucharist or the Mass, it's just not every week. Well, why not? From what I remember, church was all about the body and the blood. When is the last time that you were in Oh, jeez. First grade, when my uncle died? I mean, all I can remember is the whole sit, stand, kneel, cross. I don't know, most of it was in Latin. Well, this isn't like that. It's different. Like, first the band comes out and they play a couple songs. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. There's a band? Yeah. What, like nuns rocking out, swinging sisters? <laughs> no. I told you it's not Catholic. What? So you're not Catholic anymore? Your parents must be eight. No, I mean, I love the Catholic Church, so it's not like that. Um, that's where I grew up. It's where I met God. And my priest, Father Pat, he loved Jesus more than anyone I've ever known. And now I'm just, well, I don't know what I am. Maybe you're alien. Okay. You should come. Where, to Pandora? No, come with me to church on Sunday. You're serious? Yeah, come. You'll see how much sense it makes. Will Father Tom be there? I told you, he's not a priest. He's a pastor. Like I said, what's the difference? Maybe you should just ask him yourself. Maybe I will. All right, well, hello, everyone. I'm uh, Father Tim, or uh, Pastor Tim, just Tim. Uh, I've gotten confusion before, even from my own family, in fact. I need to tell you this. Uh, Eleven years ago, I married an Irish girl, Colleen McCabe. That's my wife's maiden name. She is half Irish, half Italian, which means two things. She is 100% Catholic, and her family is very, very loud. And uh, they are wonderful people, actually, whom I love very much. And so this is a subject that is close to my heart just by, uh, again, show of hands. I saw Tom do that before. I didn't see that. How many of you do have a Catholic family member, a friend, a relative background? We have Welcome to New Jersey. Uh, that's probably like three out of four people. Very, very, not, not unusual uh, for the East Coast. My in-laws 
live in Connecticut, and they are Irish Catholic. I understand it's kind of redundant. And uh, when Colleen and I were married, there was a little bit of confusion about that. Um, she actually attended Catholic school all the way through her childhood, did her first communion, was confirmed, went to CCD. You probably have some, some of you have memories of that. And, uh, and then she went to all-girls Catholic high school. And when Colleen met this guy in college, there was a rumor in her family that I was not Irish, true, uh, was not Italian, and was not Catholic, which is, you can see, three strikes uh, against me. But they attended our wedding, which was in a non-denominational Protestant church, kind of like the one I grew up in. And then when I entered the ministry, they were supportive, but a little bit confused by the whole thing. A couple of summers ago, I got a call from Colleen's uncle, Jimmy, who was getting married himself that summer. I said, hey, congratulations. He said, well, listen, great news, Tim. I'm getting married at St. Catherine's, and I'd be honored if you could perform the ceremony. Can you do it? And I said, well, I'm not sure St. Catherine's, your parish, would go along with that. And he said, well, why? We finally have a priest in our family. And I said, Jim, I don't know if you noticed this, but I'm married to your niece. And, uh, and he was quiet. And they said, does the Pope know this? He, like, literally... <laughs> And so I said, well, no, I'm, I'm, I'm actually a pastor in a Protestant church. Liquid is an evangelical church. It's non-denominational. Um, and although we have a lot in common with our Catholic brothers and sisters, we actually have some distinct uh, differences when it comes to the, the core beliefs of our faith. And I didn't want to offend him. He's also one of six Irish brothers who are over six foot. So I said, why don't you check? And, uh, and he got back and said, sure enough, it has to be done by a priest. But listen, do you have a black suit? It was really it was, it was amazing, just kind of a misunderstanding there. I think there's a lot of confusion when it comes to the similarities and differences between Catholics and Protestants. And that's really why we're doing this series, to bring some clarity to the most frequently asked questions that we receive about biblical Christianity and the beliefs held by those two great traditions. Um, now, before we dive into this, I want to be as, as, as clear as I can with you about this. The goal of this series is not to bash Catholicism. It's just the opposite. It's to help us build bridges to people like the half of my family, your friends, neighbors, etc., who come from that background. Um, so this isn't going to be like a Pearl Harbor job. I'm probably going to disappoint some of you who are like, oh, I hope you nail the Catholics. Not at all. Okay, this is half my family. Uh, in fact, that's unchristian. One of our core convictions at Liquid is the responsibility to be respectful of other people's faith traditions. But that doesn't mean we whitewash our differences. What it means is we can dialogue about them in a thoughtful and constructive manner. And that's what I hope we're going to do. So practically speaking, if you're Catholic, maybe, uh, or if you haven't been to Mass in years, you're wondering, is there still a place at church uh, for you? You are welcome here. I want to make that really, really clear. Maybe some of your family's Catholic. And your presence here today, or maybe you're watching online, is a gift to us. We take that seriously. And we genuinely want to learn uh, from each other. And we call you our Catholic brothers and sisters. So you need to know that. Um, also, I need to just... Start with confession. We don't do like kind of confession that way, but confess to you. Last night, I went to a different church. I went to Saturday night mass at St. Vincent's Church in, uh, in uh, Roman Catholic Church in Madison, just as a way of trying to, trying to get into it. You know where that is, right? You know where that is, Jim. Um, it was amazing service, and it was amazing how much of the similarities we have, but I wanted to make, mention that because this isn't propaganda like for our church. We're trying to like convert people or, or get them in here. One of our um, heritages as an evangelical believers, is that we believe there actually is great freedom for people to see what the Bible has to say for themselves and trust God's Spirit to meet them on their spiritual journey and guide them into the truth of Jesus Christ. So we're going to compare and contrast this, what the Bible says about these two branches of the Christian faith, and kind of let you decide. 
Um, we get questions all the time, such as, what is the difference between like a, a priest and a pastor? Um, if you're a follower of Jesus, aren't you supposed to take Mass every week, for instance? They did that last night at 5 p.m. Mass. Uh, what about confession? Uh, is there a little booth here? Or, or maybe you've seen like a rosary, and if you've seen a rosary, you've probably seen on one side is Jesus, and on the other side of this rosary is Mary. Uh, can I pray to either one? How come they're both on that? What's the deal with that? Um, I was baptized as an infant. Do I have to do that again? My guess is you have some questions, and so what I want to invite you to do is, as we kind of talk today, would you write down whatever questions you have on the back of your connection card? We're calling it Catholic Questions, and we're going to collect these at the end of our service, and I'm going to try to address some of these over the next few weeks. Um, people are asking, like, what about purgatory, that kind of stuff, and, and, uh, and different things. So whatever questions you might have here, just jot it down, and I'll do my best to get to those in the next couple weeks. Um, so here's the deal. Uh, by way of background, uh, the Roman Catholic Church is an incredible, incredible institution. It is the world's largest Christian church with more than a billion members. That's amazing. Uh, over half of all Christians, uh, that's more than one-sixth, I think, of the world's population are Roman Catholic, probably triple that size here in our area. Uh, but that term Catholic actually means universal. And the Roman Catholic Church says, hey, we are the one true apostolic church that Jesus gave the authority um, to be his visible witness in the world. Um, the, the Catholic Church is built, you probably know this, maybe, I don't know, uh, on the Apostle Peter, who according to tradition was the first pope, or, or the vicar of Christ, that's the representative of Christ on earth. Uh, the current pope, uh, Pope Benedict XVI, he's the church's highest earthly authority in all matters of faith, so like what you believe, morality, what you practice, and governance, like who has the authority. And it's amazing because their mission is very similar to ours. Ours is to guide people into a life-growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Theirs is to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ, administer the sacraments, and you've probably heard of the sacraments, what are those? We'll get into that. And exercise charity. And quite honestly, Catholics have historically done some absolutely outstanding work when it comes to caring for the sick, the poor, educating the young. I mean, think about Catholic universities. Some of you uh, have attended some amazing institutions, missions, hospitals, all of that. Probably the most recognizable Christian face of Christian charity is Mother Teresa, who just makes you glad to be a follower of Christ. But evangelicals have actually a lot in common with Roman Catholics, particularly the fundamentals of our faith, including, for instance, like a belief in the Trinity, the virgin birth, the deity of Christ, the, the existence that there is a heaven and hell, that Jesus is going to return. We have significant common ground in our faith. Last night at Mass, I felt very at home. They were reading from the Gospels. It's Lent season. Uh, it was really neat. They were talking about the kingdom of God. I was like, I'm dialed right in. And at the same time, we just got to acknowledge, we can't whitewash the fact that we do indeed have doctrinal differences. Now, to understand where those conflicts kind of come from, you have to like, get in a time machine and travel back a little bit to the year 1517. And uh, if you did, you probably, in a college history class, maybe you've heard of the name Martin Luther. Who's heard of that name? He was a Catholic priest. He's an Augustinian priest in Wittenberg, Germany. And uh, he was a professor of theology at Catholic University, and he had a problem. In 1517, because he realized the more Luther opened the Bible and studied what it said for himself, the more troubled he got by where his church was going. Specifically, he objected to the sale of indulgences in order to raise money to rebuild St. Peter's, or, or Peter's Basilica in Rome. And basically, by buying indulgence, you could free a relative from purgatory, from being punished there all the quicker. So, so, so Luther's like, wait a minute, what? Where is that in the Bible? <laughs> he felt like that kind of smacked of corruption, and, and it misled Christians to think like, so their sins are forgiven through a financial transaction than just humble confession of sin before God. And so in, in 1517, he made a list 
of 95, I don't know if you've heard this term before, theses or objections, 95 ways that he objected to the way that the Catholic Church w- 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 was, um, w- was positioning the faith of people. And basically, his, his, those 95 theses were his way of saying, I protest! And protestantism was born. That's where we get that word from. Here's a picture of Luther's 95 theses. And it was Luther's protest writing that sparked the Protestant Reformation, or, or an attempt to reform the Catholic Church in the 16th century. All the reformers were Catholics, they were, they were priests, and they wanted to see their church reform or return to its biblical roots. You make sense? This makes sense? Among other things, Luther's writings helped um, kind of form three of the guiding principles of that call for reform. And the first was known as Sola Scriptura, which is Latin. We're going to learn a little Latin, good times, uh, today. And simply put, it's, the, it, it, it's Scripture alone. That's what sola means, alone. And it's the belief that the Bible was the only infallible source of truth. And this was a direct challenge, as you can imagine, to, to the authority of the Pope. Because Luther said, you know what? A simple layman armed with Scripture is more powerful than the mightiest Pope without it. Sola Scriptura, the Bible alone. The second commitment was called sola fide. Let's say this together. Sola fide, which means faith alone. It simply means that man is justified or made right with God through simple belief, faith alone. And in contrast to this idea that, like, I'm saved by doing good things. That's what most people think. I get, how do you get to heaven? Well, I try to be a good person. I try to go. That's at the heart of Roman Catholic theology. And Luther opened the Bible. He read Ephesians 2, which said this. He left off the page for him. He said, for it's by grace you've been saved through what? Through faith. And this not from yourselves. It's the what? It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And Martin Luther said, the Bible seems to say, Scripture says, that salvation is a gift. You can only receive a gift. You don't pay for it. And any good works that we have just flow out of gratitude for what God's done, not out of guilt, like i got to get into like me. And this was like this paradigm shift happened. People are like, we're saved through faith alone? What we humbly believe in our heart, not what we proudly do with our hands? Sola fide. And the third conviction of the reformers was called solo Cristo, which you probably know means Christ alone. Every person who simply believes in Christ alone, believes in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for your sins, to pay for your sins, has direct access to God. There's no intermediary necessary, which means priests were out of a job. And Luther was a priest. <laughs> now, this did not go well with the church, as you can imagine. Because <laughs> the, like, the Bible, he's like, talks about the priesthood of all believers. Anybody now has direct access to God because Jesus was the ultimate priest. He sacrificed himself for us. Solo Christo, he's the mediator between God and man. So those are the three foundational beliefs of Protestants, Protestants, that literally ran counter to the teaching of the Catholic Church. I think you take a look at these. uh, We can say these together just so you kind of get them in your mind. We'll be orienting our series around them. Ready? Sola Scriptura, Sola Fide, Solo Christo. Look at you, you're Latin. That's awesome. That was very Olive Garden Latin, by the way. I'm not buying it. As you can imagine, uh, the church was not pleased with Luther's work. (laughs) And Pope Leo X opened a heresy trial against him. And when Luther was ordered to recant his convictions, he said, Now, my conscience is held captive to the word of God. And he was excommunicated from the church in 1521. He was actually declared an outlaw by by law, and uh, it made it a crime for anyone to give him food and shelter. And needless to say, this is where things got a little bit tense between Catholics and Protestants. And yet, that's our heritage. 
and, and, and I think it's important just to acknowledge that it's significant because it highlights in many ways what we believe and why we do what we do, how, what we practice here in the 21st century. See, the, reformer, the Reformation gave birth to what I, here's what I would call, I would call it the Bible plus plan. In other words, Protestants said, how do we know what truth is? How do we know what is real in this world? And they said, oh, well, that's easy. The Bible is God's word, and that's what tells us what truth is. And they said, what else besides the Bible? And the, and the reformer said, oh, that's very easy. The Bible plus nothing. <laughs> Sola Scriptura. This is the word of God. That's why we preach from it. That's what reveals truth is. That's why I preach from the Bible here at Liquid. I'll give you just Tim's thoughts on God each week. We believe this is an inspired source of truth. 2 Timothy 3 describes this well. It says, all scripture is God-breathed. It comes out of the mouth of God. And it's useful for what? Teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. Now watch this. So that the man of God, and that means everybody, that's what that language means, the man of God, everybody, the average person, may be what? Thoroughly equipped for every good work. In other words, everything you need to know about how to be saved by God and how to live for him in this world is contained in this book. That's how we know what truth is. The Bible plus nothing plan, okay? Now, the Roman Catholic Church, they said, well, we love the Bible too. No doubt about that. And Roman Catholics, we would agree on that. They'd say this is the inspired word of God. They said the Bible definitely is the source of truth. That's how we know what truth is. But there's also something else. It's not the Bible plus nothing. It's the Bible plus something plan. And that little something is called tradition. Tradition. Who has seen Fiddler on the Roof? Sorry, I just pierced your ears. It's not just the word of God, but also the teachings or traditions of man of what the Pope, of bishops, of the apostles down through the centuries. It's what man teaches as, as dogma, as well as the truth of God. These are the twins in the Catholic Church. And that's, that's not my interpretation. That is actually what they would tell you, any Catholic priest would tell you. Check out this. This is amazing. This is an excerpt from the, um, the official uh, catechism of the Catholic Church. Here's what you're going to notice. I'm not going like, to try to speak for Catholicism. When I talk for kind of the, about the Protestant view, I'm going to quote out of the Word of God. That's what you have in your hands. When I talk about the truth of the Catholic Church, it's this plus the official catechism. And any priest would tell you, oh, good, thank you. He's representing this well. Here's what it says. Um, it's not from sacred scripture alone that the church draws her certainty about everything which is to be revealed. Both sacred tradition and sacred scripture are to be accepted and venerated with the same sense of loyalty and reverence. In other words, this plus this that's how we know what truth is. And that's what a Catholic priest would tell you. Absolutely. Word of God, traditions of the church. And that's why over the centuries, the Catholic church began adding new doctrines to the faith, like celibacy of the priesthood. That's where that comes from. Penance for the dead. Veneration of saints. Prayers to Mary. Historically, a lot of those traditions always kind of cause conflict. I'll give you a couple examples. In 1215, uh, the Fourth Lateran Council passed the doctrine of transubstantiation, and that's a really fancy word. You can write it down and impress people. Transubstantiation is simply the belief that when the Catholic priest is present over the Mass, the, 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 the bread and the wine turn into the body and blood of Christ. It's actual, we are literally partaking of the body and blood of Christ. We're going to get into that. In 1274, the Second Council of Lyon um, approved the doctrine of purgatory. How many of you have heard of that? This idea that you don't just go to heaven or hell. There's this, there's this middle ground 
where people have to do penance when they die, where they pay for their sins before they go to heaven. And that was a big flashpoint for this Reformation. In 1870, the Pope was declared infallible. Again, it's kind of amazing. This is only you know, uh, 250 or so years ago. Um, and the idea here is that the Pope, because he's in the line of the apostles in St. Peter, he's incapable of teaching error. So whatever he says, whatever his interpretations are, or whatever is not necessarily even in the Bible, but he says is the official teaching, every Catholic all over the world must obey it because of infallible teaching of the Pope. Now, this has led to a lot of issues, for instance. You've probably heard of, like, uh, like, in, like everyday life stuff. Like, uh, for instance, in uh, 1968, okay, Pope Paul VI, he issued an encyclical. That's like a writing a Pope does. It was called Human Vitae on Human Life. And among other things about the family... He said married couples shouldn't use birth control. That, that, that should not be allowed. He, and, and why? Is that in Scripture? No, he said, the church teaches, this again, official teaching, that each and every marital act must of necessity retain its relationship to the procreation of human life. So this is 1968. Basically, the church said married couples, you can only be intimate for procreation, never recreation. And this was kind of a moment where a lot of Catholic couples were put in this weird position because they were like, I, I, don't, I don't buy that. I don't know where this is coming from. And so we're going to kind of ignore that. And so you have a lot of, I was talking with somebody last night. They said, I'm a cafeteria Catholic. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, I kind of pick and choose what kind of fits for me. And, and so that happens a lot. And so that's a little bit what happens when you have the, the, the word of God plus the traditions of man and you say they're, they're, they're equal. The problem, you got, you, you, you're probably following this. You're doing the math. You're like, this explains a lot. When this happens, it's a slippery slope. Because if you keep layering on new teachings, new traditions, and say, even if these are just devotional tools to draw closer to God, it's like adding layers of paint. And the more you add, the more you have to add in order to keep the old ones intact, layer after layer. I want to show you how this works. I want you to turn in your Bible, this is our guidebook, to Mark chapter 7, okay? This is, describes a clash between uh, church leaders who are holding on to tradition and a very young protester in the first century. And uh, as you know, it's not, again, not unique to Catholics. I want to broaden this out. In the first century, Jewish people valued tradition, um, especially the religious leaders. And in Catholicism, it was not the Pope and the apostles, it was the Jewish scribes or the Pharisees who said, we have the written law of Moses. They had the first five books of Bible, the Torah. But we also value other things that we've said it's important to do to make sure God likes you. Uh, and, and that was man-made rituals that they had in, in, in Judaism. And Jesus basically walks up and says, uh, yeah, I'm going with this. I ain't buying that. <laughs> and it created this kind of very tense showdown. That's what you'll see here in Mark 7. It says this, The Pharisees and some teachers of the law who'd come from Jerusalem, gathered around Jesus, saw some of his disciples eating food with their hands that were unclean, that is unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing. So they had a ritual wasn't in the Bible, but they washed their hands before they ate. Not because they were dirty, but because they said that's a good symbol of what it means to be clean before God. So if you wash your hands, God looks at you and he says he's clean. It's not in the Bible, but that's our tradition of the elders. Now watch, verse 4. When they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they watch, and they what? Observe many other, what's the word? Traditions such as the washing of cups pitchers, and kettles. And this was amazing. They didn't just wash their hands. They washed their arms. They washed their whole top of their torso in order to be clean because that's what they said. The Torah doesn't say that, but we've added some things onto that. We have our own version of the Bible plus tradition. And over the years, the Pharisees added on and added on and added on. And what started with 10 commandments 
had become over 570 rules and regulations you had to do when you went to church in order, they said, for God to see you as acceptable in his sight. So they had all of these traditions on top. Uh, they, you had to um, measure your spices. You couldn't take a glass of water without sending that water through a strainer in case you swallowed a fly. Just kind of petty stuff. And if you didn't follow tradition, you were thought to be in contempt of God. So in verse 5, look at this. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the, what's the word? Tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it's written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, but their teachings are what? They are rules taught by men. In other words, Jesus is like, you say you love God, but somewhere along the line, these traditions, all this dogma that you're adding is cutting the heart out of faith. The, the people are they're, they're saying the right things, but their hearts are far from me. In other words, you're going through the motions. Have you ever been to church and felt like that? Their faith, once based solely on God's word, had become the Bible plus plan. God's word plus the traditions of man. And the problem is, Jesus is like, it's kind of hard to balance both at the same time. Look what he says in verse 8. You've let go of the commands of God and are holding on to what? The traditions of man. See, see here's, a, here's the thing, guys. Sometimes our traditions start out with, with, with good intentions. We want to honor God. We want to be reverent before him. We, we want to... But Jesus says, at some point, you can end up going through the motions of these traditions because it puts the emphasis on doing stuff on the outside when the reality is God cares about what's happening on the inside in here. I mean, we all know this. It's easier to wash your hands and come to dinner saying, hey, I'm, I'm clean, than acknowledge that you hate the guy sitting across the table from you. <laughs> or that you're thinking lustful thoughts about the woman over there or, or, or just judging the person waiting in line for communion ahead of you. And all of a sudden, faith becomes this kind of like, yeah, but I'm, I'm doing my thing, man. I'm, I'm sitting, standing, kneeling, washing, religious performance, and, and you go through a checklist. And Jesus is like, that just rips the heart out of faith. And it's become lifeless. It's become about guilt instead of just being honest before God and grateful for what he's done for you. And that's why he slams tradition. Look at this in verse 9. This is, this is hardcore. He said to them, you have a fine way of actually what? Of what? Setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Just like, this violates the law of basic mathematics. Whenever you add something to the word of God, you subtract from its authority. It becomes less. You add the traditions of man on top, and you actually diminish this. And Jesus very, he, he ends with this rebuke to the church leaders of his day. It says, thus you nullify the word of God by your what? Your tradition that you've handed down. And you do, you do many things like that. Now, folks, let's take this uh, time out because, as I said, this is not a series about bashing Catholicism. <laughs> it's not unique to uh, the Catholic Church, to Jews um, elevating tradition above divine truth. That's something that plenty of Protestant churches like ours do, don't they? The, the Bible plus plan, right? The church I grew up in, it was pretty much the Bible, yes, plus you better be in church every Sunday and wear your Sunday best. The Bible plus a steeple and organ music and a tie. And if you ain't, you're being disrespectful to God. The Bible plus giving a certain amount of money. Tradition, man-made tradition, 
corrupts and taints every denomination because everyone has men in it. <laughs> and where people are, tradition follows. And it starts off with good intentions like, hey, it'd be good for us to gather together with prayer. Yeah, let's have a Wednesday prayer meeting. Everybody's got to come. If Darren isn't there, we all know where he's at with God. And Jesus says, there's a problem here. Because in doing that, you actually nullify the word of God. If, if, if this is equal to this, then man's thoughts are as good as God's. Do you want to belong to a church like that? That's the fundamental tension point between the Catholic and Protestant faiths. So as we explore doctrines in the coming weeks, you're going to notice, I'm going to keep, keep going back to the Bible, the Word of God as, as, as our reference point for, for faith and practice. In the Roman Catholic Church, referring to a papal decree or a Vatican ruling, that's just as valid, if not more so. And, and you've got to understand there are exceptions to this. Do not judge. The, the, the Catholic Church, for instance, I'll be just real candid, praise God, there are many parishes that are committed to Scripture where folks are encouraged to have a vibrant, living relationship with Jesus Christ. This is where my wife first met Jesus in the Catholic Church. She became aware of her, her, that, that her, her, her life was broken, that she needed a Savior, and that she wasn't the Savior. This is, this is where she came alive, so it's important. We refer to them as our brothers and sisters because it's not for us to judge who's devoted to Christ and who's a slave to tradition. Because there are a lot of Protestant churches, for instance, that only give lip service to this thing. They say, well, this is like, you know, we'll reference that, put a little, you know, scripture up there. They don't see this as like the living and active word of God. So you, you have to get this. Everyone has to understand. Jesus slammed, it doesn't denomination, when people elevated tradition above God's word. And that's why we hold very, very firmly to the Bible plus nothing plan of truth, sola scriptura. It means that no one human has any corner on on, on the truth. Even me, I'm just a pastor, and that, that means I'm just kind of a spiritual uh, guide or leader in this church. I'm not infallible. <laughs> I might ask my wife. Uh, even when I provide the primary Bible teaching on Sunday, I don't, I'm not telling you I have like a corner on this. That one of my spiritual gifts happens to be teaching, but I'm also a regular guy who has a sin nature, and that means everything I say from the pulpit, it's your responsibility to actually go, all right, we'll see, and check it against God's word. There's a passage in Acts that I think paints the best picture, again, for Protestants, Catholics, whomever, how, uh, how a church is supposed to operate. Paul was actually preaching the gospel to the Bereans, and in Acts 17, it describes them this way. Listen to this. It says, Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness, and what did they do? They examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. I want you to imagine the Apostle Paul shows up in his church and he's like, I'm going to preach today. Lucas is taking a day off. And you're like, we don't even buy what you have to say, Paul. <laughs> We're going to check it ourselves. And that's exactly what they did. They measured against Scripture. That's a model for all believers. Whether you're Catholic or Protestant, you don't take everything that church leaders say as automatic dogma. We're humans. And it's God's written word that is a source of divine authority. So if I'm in contradiction at some point, it's your job to call that out. See, there's, a, there's authority and then there's accountability. That's right now why we have a Bible 101 class. Because we're like, we want the people of this church to learn how to handle God's word. They need to read it. They need to examine the scriptures themselves every day. That's why we have that class. Everyone, you're making sense? So Catholics, word of God, yes. Traditions of man, that too. The Bible plus plan. Evangelicals say the word of God, period. That's it. 
in a lot of ways, it's not what the Roman, Roman Catholic Church would deny as not being in the Bible. It's what it just kind of adds to it. In Colossians 2, Paul gave this very, you know, and again, you know, this instruction. He said, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on what? What phrase is used? Human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Okay? Whether you're Protestant, Catholic, Evangelical, you don't know what you are. This is the most crucial guideline when you are examining a branch of Christianity. Here at Liquid, the two most distinguishing features of our church is that we are Bible-based, you're going to get relevant teaching that applies to your life out of God's Word, and that we're Christ-centered. Everything we do is about Jesus. It's about his life, it's about his, his death, his resurrection, and, and putting his spirit into our heart. That's the whole thing. And that's very, very significant because here's, here's the truth. This is all I want you to walk away with. What you believe will impact who you worship. What you believe is truth will eventually impact who you worship. What that means is, for instance, for us, it's all about Jesus. For many Catholics, there's something about Mary as well. There's something about Mary. Now, we're going to show you some amazing Renaissance art here, by the way, during the series. It, and if you've ever, if you're not Catholic, you've sometimes wondered, like, what is it? It does seem like Mary holds a special place in the Catholic Church. And, and here is a rosary with Jesus on one side, Mary on the other. Now, why is that? Does that come from this, the Word of God, or does that come from tradition? I want to just close by giving you a real practical example so you can see how what you believe will impact who you eventually worship. Real quickly, who has heard of the Immaculate Conception? Raise your hand if you've heard that term. You own the Madonna album. How many of you? A few of you? Okay, from the 90s. All right, awesome. Um, most people, many Catholics, it doesn't matter. Most Christians assume this refers to what? It refers to the virgin birth of Jesus. And that's not it at all. That's not it at all. In fact, this refers to the Catholic belief that Mary herself was born without sin. What? I thought it was Jesus was born of a virgin without sin. No, it's Mary was born without sin. Again, I'll quote the dogma directly. It says, The most blessed virgin at the instant of her conception was preserved immune from all stain of original sin and therefore must be believed by all the faithful. In other words, all Christians around the world agree. We agree. Jesus is a Savior. He was born of a virgin. That's Mary. And Jesus lived a sinful life. That's Scripture. But Catholics add a second tradition that Mary was born without sin too, which makes her worthy, again, not disrespectfully, of special devotion. That's why you will see Catholics pray the rosary. This is just a series. Of, these represent prayers, these beads, okay? On the large bead, you pray the Our Father. On the smaller beads, you pray the Hail Mary. You know the Hail Mary? Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. You know where that's from? That's from here. That's, that's Gabriel's actual prayer on Mary. But then it says this, Holy Mary, Mother of God, Pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Tradition calls her the mother of God. That phrase actually never appears in the Bible. She's the earthly mother of the, the God-man Jesus. But she didn't give birth to the, to, to the Trinity. But what this has led to do is a lot of Catholics to kind of exalt Mary as someone who's almost more than human, kind of on a level with Jesus. So that's, that's why on the rosary, you can pray to Jesus, but if you feel a little intimidated about praying to him, you can go to Mary. Because Mary is his mother, and all good Jewish boys obey their mother, as all Irish and Italian do as well. That's, I mean, I'm, I'm being facetious, but that's official church dogma. Again, I'm going to quote this real directly. Don't want to misrepresent this. When Mary approaches the throne of her divine son, 
She begs as advocate, she prays as handmaid, but she commands as mother. That's from Pope Pius's official dogma. That's tradition. It's nowhere in Scripture. And Catholics would tell you, they said, yeah, that's, that's not in Scripture. That's a tradition of the church. We would agree Mary was blessed by God, but she's never depicted as sinless. In fact, the Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's, not, it's all he made, not everyone except Mary. In Luke, Mary herself says, my soul glorifies the Lord and rejoices in God my Savior. You only need a Savior if you see yourself as a sinner in need of saving. That's how Scripture depicts Mary. But the Pope um, infallibly decreed that she was sinless, and the problem was people started doing the math of this. Again, I'm just connect the dots here for you. They said, well, wait a minute. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, so if Mary was without sin, what happened when she died? So the Pope added another tradition called the Assumption of Mary. Have you heard of this? You've probably seen Church of the Assumption. This was added in 1950. How many of you were actually alive then? Okay, some of you, a few of you. That was added only 70, you know, 60, 70 years ago. It's really an incredible thing. And that, that says is Mary did not decay at death, but God took her up to heaven like he did with Jesus. And the problem is it's literally never mentioned in the Bible whatsoever. See, that's the problem with the Bible plus tradition. Because if you keep adding things on, you have to add on more and more and more and more and more. And where does it stop? Round and round it goes because you have to add new ones to prove the old ones are still accurate. And when you add that layer after layer, it becomes like this thing overcoated with paint. And slowly it distorts this focus of faith. And that's why a lot of Catholics are taught, hey, if, any, if you want anything from God, you've got to first pray to Mary. It says this, it's amazing. Every grace granted to men has three successive steps. This is teaching the Catholic Church. By God, it's communicated to Christ. From Christ, it passes to the Virgin. And from the Virgin, it descends to you men. In other words, she's the middle man, the middle Mary. Tradition actually calls her, she is the mediatrix of, of salvation. Pope Leo actually prayed this. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. I was amazed by this. Uh, he prayed this. He said, none, O mother of God, obtain salvation except through thee. What you believe is truth will determine who you worship as truth. In many ways, this is the Jesus and Mary plan. If you're going to talk to God, you've got to go through Mary, who then talks to Jesus. How do you know? Tradition says so. But here's what Scripture says. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man who? The man Christ Jesus. In other words, it's not just the Bible alone. It's Jesus plus nothing is the truth. Jesus plus nothing is salvation. Solo Christo. In other words, there may be something about Mary, but Scripture declares it's all about Jesus. Jesus plus nothing. He is our exclusive Savior and Lord, and any honor, quite honestly, directed elsewhere is kind of robbing him of worship due him. So with respect to Catholic brothers and sisters, Jesus himself made this very clear. He said, I am what? The way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's not a lot of wiggle room, is there? Folks, I share all of this with you so that you don't miss the big E on the I chart. <laughs> the point is, if you adhere to a Bible plus tradition plan for what you believe, it will impact who you ultimately worship. And again, with very respectful and sincerity, you don't need a necklace and you don't need a priest to be made right with God. 
What does it take to be saved? Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth, what? Jesus is Lord. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what? You will be saved. It's the Jesus plus nothing plan of truth. Thank God. That's how I know I'm saved. That's how I know God hears my prayers. Sola Scriptura, Solo Cristo. The Bible alone testifies to Christ alone. Amen? Listen, whether you are Catholic or Protestant, maybe you are here today and you're like, what did I just walk into? Uh, I don't know what I am. That's okay. Uh, it comes down to two key questions. What do you believe is truth? Is it the commands of God? Plus the traditions of man? Or is it God's word alone? And who are you trusting as a source of your salvation? Jesus um, plus all sorts of things, and we're going to get into next week, we're going to get into uh, uh, the sacraments, and, and we're going to get into purgatory and that kind of stuff. Or is it in Christ alone? That's a decision only you can make. I can't decide that for you. I can't force you to accept or believe something, but what I can do is tell you what the Bible says, and I actually trust God's Spirit to confirm that truth in your heart. And that's what I want to do right now as we pray. So let's bow our heads together. Father, thank you um, so much. Thank you, Father, for the liberating power of the gospel. And I'm praying right now for every man and woman listening in this room or maybe listening online or in their car. I'm praying to you, Jesus, that by the power of your Holy Spirit alone, would you just speak their name, call their name, Lord God. Reveal yourself to them as, as, as the one true Lord and Savior who is alone is worthy of our worship and devotion. We thank you, uh, Jesus, for your death alone on the cross for our sins, my sins, and that we're made right with God through simple faith alone. May we put our trust in you and discover the joy of eternal life. In Jesus' name alone we pray. And all God's people said together, amen. amen.